the book of Ecclesiastes, and Solomon, who I believe wrote it, seemed like all the internal evidence, regardless of what the scholars say, I think uh, the internal evidence seems to point uh, to Solomon. He was the king in Jerusalem, and he was the son of a king, and he was wise, and so he seems to fit the description. He calls himself the preacher in Ecclesiastes. And we'll be in chapter number three today. Solomon's pondering whether life is really worth it or not. Does life have meaning? And that's what our series is about because people today... Uh, wonder, a lot of people wonder, is life really meaningful? Are we just here for a short time, a short period of time, and then we're gone? And are we just dead like a dog? And even if you're a Christian, sometimes you wonder, does any of this make sense? You know, things happen, the same things, you come and go, you go through the graveyard and look at tombstones, and you say, well, that guy lived a hundred years ago, and I don't know if anybody even knows him now or not, and I wonder what he did, and wonder if it was worthwhile to him, is it worthwhile to anybody who followed him? And see a, a big, nice tombstone, and we see it, and we say, boy, that fellow must have been rich. And I wonder who's got his money now. And I wonder if, if it really did any good for him <laughs> in the long run. And so, a lot of questions about life. What is the meaning of life? And after we get saved, are we just looking forward to heaven, or is this life right now worth it? Troubles ever come your way? And you wonder, boy, is this going to be over? Uh, you might be like the uh, Calvinist who fell down the stairway, believed in everything being predestined. You know, every, every action you take is predestined before the world began. You don't have any choice. You're just a robot acting out <laughs> the, the things that's preordained to happen to you. This Calvinist fell down the stairway, and when he got to the bottom, he got up and dusted himself out, and he said, boy, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> So he was, all you do is looking forward to it happening. You just don't have any control over it uh, in, in the eyes of a Calvinist. I don't have that same theology. I believe that God is sovereign. God gives us a will. And we can't thwart his overall plan for everything. You know, no matter how I live, there's nothing I can do to keep him coming back in the second coming. There's nothing anybody, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there was nothing anybody could do. Even though a king tried to murder all the babies, they didn't get Jesus. Because there's certain things you can't override. God's got an overarching plan for the ages. And you and I can't change that. But we do have free will to change some things in our lives. And we're not robots just acting out, uh, maybe like a puppet on a string. We do have some decisions that we can make and some things we can change. Well, let's read the first eight verses, at least, of chapter 3. We'll go through the whole chapter uh, as we bring the message. Chapter 3, verse 1 in Ecclesiastes says, To everything there is a season. And it's not just the four seasons, although we have those, and I think altogether it's a good thing that we've got four seasons. But there are seasons in life. You know, one guy said, uh, <laughs> one guy said, uh, you're born, and as you get a little bit older and you see this time of year, you, you, you begin to believe in Santa Claus. 
And then later on, you grow up a little bit, and then, then you don't believe in Santa Claus. And then a little bit later, after you develop a family, you become Santa Claus. And then in the last stage of your life, you just look like Santa Claus. <laughs> and so there's different seasons in life. And that's what Solomon is talking about here. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up that which was planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war a time of peace. Father, we pray that you'd bless us as we look into this chapter that you inspired Solomon to write. And Lord, it's written for our benefit that we might understand you just a little bit better and understand life a little bit better. And Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would take these words from Scripture today and help us to understand that life is not just vanity, meaningless, worthlessness, and just a monotonous repetition. Lord, help us to understand your plan a little bit better today because we looked into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pretend. Let's pretend the bank calls you on Friday. And the bank says, someone's going to be giving you 86000 400 pennies each day starting on Monday morning. And that's $864 a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. Would you go for it? Would you like that? But there's one stipulation. You have to spend whatever is deposited into your account on Monday, you've got to spend it before Monday is over. On Tuesday, there'll be another deposit, the same amount. But you've got to spend it all on Tuesday. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all week long, that same amount will be deposited each day, but you've got to spend it before you go to bed that night. That is $6,000 a week. If I were making that much, I'd pay it on my bills as far as it'd go. That would be $315,000 a year. I'd live on that. I'd even eat a steak once in a while. For some of you, Taco Bell. But remember, whatever's left in your bank account at the end of the day gets deleted if you didn't spend it. So whatever's there... It's yours, and you can spend it all. But whatever's left over will not remain the next day. It's gone at the end of the day. Well, now let's get serious. That's pretend. If 
But think about it. God has given us a very precious gift, more valuable than 86,000 pennies. I'm making noise with everything. Why is it doing that? You've been given 86,400 seconds of time each day. 1,440 minutes in that 24-hour period. And you've got to remember the same stipulation applies. At the end of the day, whatever time you didn't spend or spend wisely is erased. You don't get to carry it over to the next day if you didn't spend it. It's your time. There's no such thing. You know, sometimes we say, boy, there's not enough time in the day. You ever say that? Just not enough time in the day. I didn't get around to it. Didn't have enough time. There's no such thing as a 26-hour day but sometimes we wish there was. One of the most fascinating things that we can think about is that little four-letter word, time, T-I-M-E. As someone put it, life is a coin. You can spend it any way you want to, but you can only spend it once. Time. That's kind of what... Solomon is getting at in his analyzing of life. Is it meaningless? Is it purposeful? Is it monotonous? Is it valuable? He's already said in the previous chapters that he didn't think activity and accumulation itself as a man living under the sun apart from heavenly things. He's already thought and said that accumulating things didn't matter too much to him now. I mean, he's king. He's got all the authority. He's rich. He's got a palace. He's got everything going for him. He's got servants. He's got land. He's got an empire. He's got a crown. And he can sit on a throne. He's accumulated all those things and he's had all these experiences. He said, man, I've I've searched out the pleasure. I've tried this for fun and I've done that for fun. And all of that leaves me still empty. And Solomon did those things. Now in Ecclesiastes he's not still living there thinking those things that life is just about pleasure eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. He's not thinking that anymore as he writes Ecclesiastes he's trying to help you and me to see what he learned over the course of his life that he wasted living the high times away from God. And he wants to help us with that. And for the man living under the sun without eternity in view, there's a huge problem. If we're just living for whatever's on this earth, if we're just living for whatever this time, this lifetime, for whatever time it lasts, time's running out. Somebody said, you're born to die. The day you're born... We say that about Jesus when he's born in Bethlehem. He's born to die. And more specifically, he's born to die on a cross to pay for our sins. But you and I are born. 
And the day we are born, the countdown starts. Just like we have a birthday, we have a death day. You see, you know when your birthday is, but your death day, God has graciously covered it. Because how would we live? Some people say, boy, if I knew I just had a day left to live, I would do this, that, and the other thing. And I'm not so sure. If we knew we were going to die in 24 hours, we might just worry ourselves to death trying to stretch that 24 hours out knowing that it's about to come. Uh, kind of like the guy that went to the doctor and, and after he got home, he, the, next, the next day he got a call from that doctor. He had a physical exam. The next day he got a call from the doctor and, and uh, the doctor said, I, I've got bad news or good news and bad news for you. And he said, well, what's the good news? He said, well, the best news is you've got 24 hours to live. He said, that's the good news? What's the bad news? He said, I was supposed to tell you that 24 hours ago. I don't know how we would live if we had 24 hours left. I don't know how we would think. I haven't been there yet, so I don't know. But time's running out. And in chapter 3, Solomon has explored all these things. He said, now, accumulating things and doing things and seeking pleasure away from God did not bring me satisfaction. But in chapter 3, he's thinking things through again. It's kind of like Solomon's carrying on a conversation with himself in Ecclesiastes. In the, in the first part, he's saying, well, eat, drink, and be merry. That's what... Uh, what I've been thinking most of my life, just have a good time because, I mean, you only go around once in life, so grab for all the gusto you can. And live it up. Eat, drink, and be merry. Have a great time because tomorrow you're going to die. Now in chapter 3, it's like Solomon said all these things in the first two chapters. Now in chapter 3, he turns around and speaks to himself. He says, now self, I see what you're saying and I understand how you came up with those arguments but we're way too wise to let those arguments go with that. I'm going to have to question your arguments. Do you ever have a conversation with yourself? <laughs> you know, they say it's, it's not unusual for you to have a conversation with yourself. It's just a little more unusual when you start answering yourself. Well, Solomon's answering himself here, and he's saying, you know, I know the arguments you're making, but I'm going to have to explore this a little further see if you're right about this. And he's presented four arguments up to this point proving that life was nothing but grasping at soap bubbles which are bursting in midair. And now in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he begins to re-examine each of them carefully. And his first argument was the monotony of life. And we talked about that in Chapter 1, verses 4 through 11, he examined it uh, again now. And in Ecclesiastes 3, in verse 1, he starts examining that again. And he discovered that four factors must be considered before you can say that life is monotonous. Do you ever feel like life is just monotonous? Wake up in the morning, you know, it's time to get up and uh, go about your day. Grab some breakfast right out the door go to work, come back home, turn on the TV, eat a little supper, go to bed, and get up the next morning and do it all over again. 
Seems a little monotonous. Well, here's your problem. You're leaving coffee out in the morning. No, I don't think that'll fix everything. <laughs> it's a magic elixir, but it doesn't fix everything. What did Solomon see about this argument that he made about life just being monotonous? Well, first he began to see something above man, a God who is in control of time and who balances our experiences. Things happen for a reason. One of those memes on Facebook, I think it's attributed to John Wayne. I don't know if he really said it or not, but he said, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes that reason is you're stupid. <laughs> now, sometimes we do some stupid things. But there is a God in heaven. And Solomon looked up and he said, he, at first he's saying, he's saying, life is just monotonous. The sun comes up, sun goes down, we do everything over again. And now he's re-examining that and he's beginning to see there is a God above that's in control of time. Whatever time you have, He's in charge of it. And He's in charge of the things, circumstances that come into your life. And then He saw something within man in verses 9 through 14 in the chapter we're in. Now He saw something within man. He saw some kind of a link to eternity, that there's something more than just what's going on here on earth around us. There's something in man's heart that links him to eternity, that causes him to have a hunger, a thirst, a vacuum within, within himself that makes him desire to know that there's something more to life than just what we see around us. Something more. Philosophers have asked over the centuries, oh, why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? Where am I going? Well, philosophers sometimes don't come up with the right answers, but God's got the right answers in the Bible. <laughs> Third, he saw something <clears throat> ahead of man that keeps life from being monotonous. He saw that there is a, an event called death that's coming. And that keeps recurring in Ecclesiastes. Look, I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to major on this point of death. It's just that it comes in the Scripture. And just like anything else that comes in Scripture, I don't have, the, I don't have the, the wherewithal. I don't have the authority to say, well, we're going to skip over that. God put it in there, so we got, we got to address it. And just like each individual, you may not like to think about death, but Solomon says it's coming. And so he saw this. And then he saw something around man, the problems and the circumstances of life. And that will come in the next chapter we'll address in a later message. But these, these factors keep our lives, listen, these factors keep our lives from being monotonous and meaningless. Life is important. And that's why you don't have the right, you don't have the right, the authority to prematurely end your life. And neither does anybody else have the authority from God to end somebody's life in murder. Well, let's consider three of these factors in this message. First of all, look up. Look up. God controls time. Verses 1 through 8. Everything will work to be beautiful if we cooperate with God's timing. Look at verse number 11. We didn't read it. Watch this. In verse number 11 in our chapter 3. He hath made everything beautiful in His time. 
he, also he has set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. He says everything is beautiful in his time. And so for the one who is saved, the one who has been born again, the one who has the Spirit of God living within his heart, the one who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, does not have a meaningless life. He does not have a life that has no purpose. There is a purpose to it. And he says, if we don't mess things up, it'll turn out beautiful in his time. What does it say in Romans 8, 28? We know that all things work together for good to them who love God. Everything says that all things work together for good to them that love God. So how does this work? Well, we need to look, first of all, at verse number two again. He says, there is a time to be born and a time to die. A time to be born and a time to die. I'm just thinking... Every once in a while, it turns out this way. There's one family that's rejoicing at the birth of a new baby. I mean, I like new babies, don't you? They're a lot better than old babies. New babies. There's something special about new babies. I mean, they're just, they're just, they're weak and they're helpless and dependent upon you, and you hold them delicately, and and mothers snuggle them to their breast, and and we coo and play, and and they're just special. But at the same time, you can usually see another family weeping because they just lost a loved one. One comes into the world, another goes out. There is a time to be born. And listen, if you think God is not sovereign, I'm not a Calvinist, but God is sovereign. He is over everything. He's in control of things, and He's in control of every birth. And just because somebody was, was born unplanned doesn't mean their life is not valuable. And many of the states pass laws to abort babies because they might have been one of those exceptions of rape or incest. But do you know it wasn't that baby's fault that somebody got raped? It wasn't that baby's fault that it was an inconvenient time. It wasn't that baby's fault that a mother or a dad didn't feel like they had the money to feed that baby. It was not that baby's fault if incest was committed. Are those sins? You bet. Are they horrendous sins? Yes. Is it grievous? Yes. But it's not the baby's fault. There's time to be born. And nobody ought to step in and take over God's position of deciding who gets born and who doesn't. Put that baby up for adoption. If you can't feed it, if it's inconvenient for you to have a baby, first of all, keep your legs crossed, and that might help. I mean, we just got to be honest about this, right? right. Promiscuity has caused abortion to be a rampant method of birth control, and it's just wrong. Be virtuous, be modest, be pure. Because it's God's decision when babies ought to be born. And he says, and it's time to die. And it doesn't matter if we're ready or not, death comes. It's an unpleasant thought, but it's a real thought. 
And in this passage of Scripture, we're going we're to see that Solomon comes to the conclusion that, yeah, a lot of things happen, <coughs> and some things are, are not nice, some things are not pleasant, some things are not pleasurable, but life happens. And yes, death is coming, but we have to be ready for it. And just because we don't like to think about dying doesn't mean that it's not part of God's plan. Because of the fall of, uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, death was passed upon all men. And so we die because of that. You don't have to rejoice about dying, but we do need to face it. You don't want to be like uh, the two twin boys, Hudah and Dudah, that was their names. <laughs> Hudah and Dudah, they went to school one day, and, and uh, Hudah had a speech problem. He couldn't say anything without stuttering, real, real bad. And the only way he could say things, he was kind of like Mel Tillis, the only way he could say things was to sing it, and then he wouldn't stutter. Well, Hudah and Dudah went to school one day, and they're playing on the playground, and, and Dudah climbed up on the very tip-top of the swing set, fell off, broke his neck, and died right there on the spot. And so Hudah went home to tell his parents that Dudah was dead. And when he got there, he told his mama, he said, I, 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 that, that happened. She said, wait, son, you know you can't say anything when you're excited. Just sing it to me. He said, somebody died at school today. Doo-dah, doo-dah. Well, I mean, you can't rejoice about death, but it does happen, right? Look at the other verse, or the end of verse 2. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. There's a time to break up the garden and plant the seeds. And then there's a time in the fall that you pull up those old dead dry plants and throw them in a pile and burn them. And then verse 3 says a time to kill and a time to heal. Now there's debate over whether a time to kill means times of war. I mean, that might be an application. It's probably not the primary application or primary interpretation of this verse because war is mentioned later on down here. And time to kill could mean capital punishment, and that's certainly prescribed in the Scriptures that capital punishment uh, is, is a doable thing. When somebody takes somebody else's life, then execution is biblical. Uh, a time to kill and a time to heal. There is a time to put some bandages on people and things and try to heal things up in broken relationships. Sometimes there's, you, might, you might, might want to kill them, <laughs> but there is a time when you need to heal them. Verse 3, the last part says, a time to break down and a time to build up. There's times when you want to People come in and smash an old building, deconstruct it, demolish it, and in its place build up a nice new building. They do it in Cersei all the time. You see, I see restaurants getting knocked down. You think, man, that, I thought that thing was just built a couple of years ago. Now they're knocking it down. They're going to build another one up in its place. Verse 4 says a time to weep. Now we're talking about time. Stay with me. A time to weep and a time to laugh. Well, we we pretty well know that there are times when we weep, like at a funeral, somebody who's been in a car accident, somebody who's very sick, 
somebody who's very heartbroken. There's time to weep. And the Bible says we ought to weep with them who do weep and uh, laugh with them who laugh. There's time to laugh. You know, when, when somebody's having a good time, instead of us being annoyed by their good time or, or being jealous of their good time, we ought to laugh with them. If they're happy, we ought to laugh with them. Good for you. Something good happened to you, good for you. You, 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 you inherited a million dollars, good for you. I'm with you. Don't forget who I am. I might be kin to you. <laughs> a time to mourn and a time to dance. And then in verse 5, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. When I was in Israel a number of years ago, we went up on the Golan Heights doing a tour, and beautiful green green uh, fields and pastures up there. And one of the things that we saw a lot of was stone fences. Uh, those old fields had been real rocky, and they just had oodles of stones, maybe the size of a basketball. And these stones, they'd gather them up out of their fields so they could plow their fields and have productive fields without breaking a plow. And so they'd take those stones and pile them up in windrows, and they'd have stone fences, oodles of them. Beautiful, too, I might add. And so those, those Hebrews would gather their stones together and build fences, and sometimes they'd gather stones to construct a building. Uh, sometimes they'd gather stones to throw at each other, you know, like Baptists do. And then there's time to cast stones away. Well, when the armies would invade each other back in those days, uh, if they wanted to ruin somebody's property, they would take those stones from those fences and scatter them all over their fields so their fields would be a mess. And so there's time to gather together and a time to cast away, uh, a time to in- embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, uh, to give somebody a hug might be an appropriate time and there might be a time when it's inappropriate. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. I'm going through a time right now. We've got an old, about 150 foot long chicken house, probably over 50 years old, probably more than that, probably 75 years old. And when we moved there 25 years ago, that old chicken house was half full of just junk, you know, different things. Some of it's not, not a lot of antiques. I'm talking about just, just mostly discards and just junk. And... Then when we moved in for the past 25 years, I've added some of my junk to that junk. And so now we've got a real junky building that has very little storage space or use to it. So things have been gathered together over the years. Now we're casting away those things and we're hauling some off, burning some things and cleaning it out. So I've got a place to park my, my equipment in there, bush hog and tractor and stuff like that, trailer. And so there... What we're getting at here in Solomon's soliloquy is that there is a time to lose and a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend or to rip apart. When they would have some tragedy, those, those Hebrew people would rip their clothes to show that they, were, that they were heartbroken. And so there was a time to rend and a time to sow. Sometimes you're supposed to sow things together. You know, like some of, some of your genes that you've got, you need to sew those things up. <laughs> a time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Sometimes, and we have a hard time learning how to just 
not say anything. <laughs> There's times when we ought not to say anything. Uh, if you know you have a critical spirit, boy, learning how to zip that lip is a troublesome thing, but it's a good thing to learn. And there are times when you need to speak up against injustice. Time to love and a time to hate. Well, even God says there's a few things He hates in the Scripture. Time of war and a time of peace. So He's talking about all these different times. God's in charge of all those times. So I guess if we could say, since God's in charge of time, He brings everything is beautiful in His time. So what we have to do is recognize that, that there, there is His job to produce things in time and it's our job to respond to what He's brought into our life. And when God is not opening a door of what you think is an opportunity, you, you ought not be trying to kick it open. God will open the door if it's His will. Are you listening? He will, he will open that door for you. You don't have to kick open the doors of God's provision. He is a providing God. He's a loving God. He is a supplying God. But when you decide that He's placed a certain calling on your life or, or that He's placed a certain desire in your heart or He's placed a certain mate in your heart or a certain education in your heart, if you violate His standards... <laughs> and try to kick that door open on your own if it's not God's will, you're messing up God's timing and it'll cost you. Pray for it, but don't force it. Don't live in the past and don't live in the future. Live right now. Some people are just living in the past. Well, I remember the glory days. Well, I do think there were some times back in the 50s and 60s that, that I thought was better than they are right now, but I can't go back there and live that. I've got to live in what God has given us in this time. And so while we can't go back and relive the past, we can live right now and enjoy now. We can't enjoy the future yet. We might pray about it and we might be expectant of it. I expect the Lord Jesus is going to be coming back soon and I can look forward to it and I can watch for His coming, but I better live as though He's not coming back for another hundred years. We've got to still provide for our family. We still got to work for a job. We still got to go to church. We still got to read our Bible. We still got to pray. We still have to be friends with people. And so we don't want to live as though everything's in the past. And have you ever eaten a green persimmon? How many has ever eaten a green persimmon? You know what they're like, right? Woo! You bite into one of those things and it'll pucker you up. Oh, I'm telling you, you'd be a good kisser right then. A green persimmon. But if you wait until after the frost... I'll get a frost or two and then pick up some of those persimmons that have been frosted on and eat them. They're sweet and mild and tender and flavorful. But you don't want to harvest them too early. <laughs> You're not going to like it. Same thing with going against God's way of timing in your life. If you try to harvest things before God's ready, it's going to be like eating a green persimmon and you're going to pucker up because you're not going to like it. Don't Run ahead of God. Then number two, he says, <clears throat> look within. Eternity is in your heart. Look at, verse number, uh, look at verse number 11 again. He hath made everything beautiful 
in His time. So if we get our timing coordinated with God's timing, we respond to His time, things can be beautiful. All things will work together for good. Then He says also, he, also he has set the world in their heart. Now there's different ways that different Bible students in, interpret that. He has set the world in their heart. Let me tell you what I, what I boil it all down to. Since, since those other guys can't agree, just listen to me, I'll tell you. Okay. Uh, he has set the world in their heart. Have you ever said, there's something that you really wanted, and you said, boy, I'd give the world to own that. I'd give the world on that 57 Chevy. If I had the world, I'd give it. I'd, I'd give the world to be able to have that house. I'd give the world for that girlfriend or that boyfriend. I'd give the world. What does that mean? Well, a limitless amount that we're willing to give for something we desire. Now, giving the world means limitlessness, all right. But a 57 Chevy is still in the world. So that wouldn't quite do it. But if somebody says, listen, if somebody says, I would give the world, I've tried everything in this world, I've tried pleasure, I've tried activity, I've tried having success and riches, I've tried all that, and nothing has satisfied. I'd give the world to know God and to know that He's going to put me in heaven one day. Now we're talking about limitlessness in our desire on the spiritual realm linking to heaven. God has put a desire into every person's heart. I don't care who they are. I don't care if they proclaim to be an atheist. I don't care if they're, if they're somebody who says, I despise church. I don't care if there's somebody who says, well, I, me and Jesus got our own thing going. You know, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I just don't believe in the Bible and Jesus and that stuff. I'm spiritual in my way. <laughs> I don't care what they say. God has put a desire in everybody's heart to know something exists beyond this realm that's going to last for eternity. Everybody wants that, whether they admit it or not. Man's life is a gift from God. Man's life is linked to eternity. That doesn't mean everybody's saved, but everybody has the desire to know God. Remember on Athens Hill, when Paul looked at all of those, he said, man, you've got devotions to every God under the sun. He said, you even got one to the unknown God. What are they? They're searching for something. They're wanting to worship this God, that God, or that hill, or that mountain, or that river, or that planet, that sun. They're looking for something to link them to eternity. Paul said, you've got all these, all these devotions. But he said, that unknown God's the one you really need. The one you don't know anything about. That's the one who sent his son to be born in Bethlehem. That's the one who sent his son to die on a cross and to pay for your sin. That's the one that will make you born again and give you eternal life so that you don't have to wonder where you're going when this life is over. It gives you purpose in life to know that you're living for God and not just for self and not just for this world. He said eternity the world in their heart. Limitless desire. People would give anything. Even atheists have died and on their deathbed say, I would give anything to know that I live 
beyond the grave. Everybody would like to know that. And God's put that in our heart. And that's why tonight we'll be bringing our next message, Brother Dustin, on introducing people to that unknown God. Dustin asked me last week, he said, could we have... Could we have a series or a sequel, part two, to that message from Sunday night about sending people to Christ? I said, I'm thinking about that. Let's pray about it. And, and God has, uh, I think, has allowed us to go in that direction. So tonight, you don't want to miss out on it. That's free commercial. Solomon is not saying, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> He's not saying that. You ever see that fish on the wall? Don't worry, be happy. He's not just saying, have faith. Some people just got faith in faith. They got faith in their faith. The object of faith is what makes the difference. And Solomon's saying, I had, I had confidence and faith in riches and pleasures and all these things I've tried, but boy, faith in God is what counts. And friend, when we get to the point where our faith is in Him, it's not in my ability to enjoy things on this earth. If I enjoy God, He will allow me to enjoy some things while I'm here. The third thing that we mentioned will be through. Look ahead, death is coming to all. Verses 15 through 22 in chapter 3. He says in verse number 20, I'll go unto one place. Well, let me back up <clears throat> and in, in verse 18. He said, I said in my heart, this is what he had said earlier, I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go unto one place, and all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Now look, he's not saying that there's no difference between mankind and beast. Man is totally a different being than animals. What he's saying here is that one thing we have in common with the beast is that in this earthly life, we're all going to die and go back to the dust. And in that sense, there's no difference between a beast, an animal, and human beings because we're all going to die. It helps us to recall uh, the assurance that God has given us that we, in spite of the fact that we're going to die, when we have our time coordinated with God's time, we're living according to His plan for man. We can enjoy all those things that Solomon said, man, I didn't find satisfaction in those things. That's because he was spending his life with the things instead of God. But what he is saying is that even though we're going to die, it ought to help us to make some decisions. It certainly keeps life from being monotonous. And it gives you things to do because your time is limited on this earth. Life is not valueless. And may I say that God does intervene in lives. See, the deists, many, many people in years past, and I guess still, 
are what they call deists. They believe in God, but they believe God just... You ever see one of those tops? I don't know if they make them anymore or sell them anymore, but when I was a kid, they had a top. You could wrap a string around it and yank it, and this top would spin round and round and round. After you pull it, it'd just spin and spin and spin, like you'd take a basketball and spin it around. Uh, deists believe that God created everything like a spinning ball, and then he just backed off and said, I'm not going to fool with it anymore. And he just went away. <laughs> you guys take care of yourselves. That's what deism believes, that God, God existed and created, but he doesn't get involved in human affairs. According to the Bible, that's baloney. We see God getting involved a lot of times. The Holy Spirit lives within those who are saved. And he gets involved. And he says, don't do that. Don't do that. That'll, that'll hurt you. Do this instead. That's the Holy Spirit's job in your life. And because of that involvement of God in our life, we can spend our lives, even knowing death is coming, we know that God gets involved in our lives and sometimes he can get involved in a miraculous way. He intercepted and intervened all through the scriptures. When he, when he made the widow's oil to remain in that barrel, no matter how much she, she dipped out, he kept replacing it. The meal in the barrel didn't waste away. It was still there. When Jesus touched the, the, the stretcher that the dead boy was on, he raised that life back up from the dead boy. God gets involved in the dealings of history. And he gets involved in your life. And if you're saved... You have no reason to think life is meaningless because God wants to be involved in your life and our job is to just let Him dictate to us through His Word what His grand plan is and get on board with that. And when you're on board, listen, when you're on board with God and in His time, everything is valuable and your life will not be meaningless I just, I've said this a lot of times. On my tombstone, just put, you know, don't uh, write a bunch of good stuff about me. Just say he was a servant of God. That's all I want to be is just a servant of the Lord. A servant of the Lord. If I serve him, everything else will be beautiful in its time. That means that when, when I stand before him at the judgment seat, there's a lot better chance that I'll hear from him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Have some rewards. Life is not meaningless because there is a judgment seat where we will see rewards and good words from the Lord. Now, if somebody's not saved, there is a judgment for them as well. It's called the white throne judgment where all of those who rejected Christ will be resurrected one day and stand before Him. And in that day, He will not be a Savior anymore. He will be a judge. And He won't ask, how good a life did you live? There'll be one main question. Did you accept Christ as Savior? That name's not written in the Lamb's book of life. He'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Those will be the hardest words ever to hear. Depart from me. I never knew you. If you're not saved, now is the time. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we love you. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins for us. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Lord, thank you that he 
took our sins upon his own shoulders. He was the innocent one dying for the guilty. Lord, we fully recognize that there's nothing in our power that we can do to earn heaven. All we can do is throw ourselves at the mercy of God and claim the blood of Jesus Christ, that he died to pay for my sins. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone listening today who has not received Jesus as Savior, they would realize just being spiritual is not quite good enough. Being one who believes that God exists is not quite good enough. Being one who does good things is not quite good enough. Those who are very moral and live good lives, help them to understand that that won't get them into heaven. Only one thing, because all of our works are as filthy rags. Only thing, Lord, that you have said that would relieve us from the debt of our sins is the blood of your son, Jesus. The blood he shed on the cross of Calvary, that one thing will save any soul who will place their faith in him. Lord, I pray that there be people who would trust him as Savior this very day. While there is time, there is time, but there will be a time when time will not exist as we know it on this earth and decision time will be over. I pray that you'd bless us. Help us to make right decisions. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. We stand together. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.